Section 2 of The Genealogy of Morals by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Horace B. Samuel This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Church First Essay Good and Evil, Good and Bad Part 2 11 The method of this man is quite contrary to that of the aristocratic man who conceives the root idea good spontaneously and straight away, that is to say, out of himself, and from that material then creates for himself a concept of bad, this bad of aristocratic origin and that evil out of the cauldron of unsatisfied hatred, the former an imitation, an extra, an additional nuance, the latter on the other hand the original, the beginning, the essential act in the conception of a slave morality. These two words, bad and evil, how great a difference do they mark, in spite of the fact that they have an identical, contrary in the idea good. But the idea good is not the same. Much rather let the question be asked, who is really evil according to the meaning of the morality of resentment? In all sternness let it be answered thus, just the good man of the other morality, just the aristocrat, the powerful one, the one who rules, but who is distorted by the venomous eye of resentfulness into a new color, a new signification, a new appearance? This particular point we would be the last to deny. The man who learnt to know those good ones only as enemies, learnt at the same time not to know them only as evil enemies, and the same men who inter pares were kept so rigorously in bounds through convention, respect, custom, and gratitude, though much more through mutual vigilance and jealousy inter pares, these men who in their relations with each other find so many new ways of manifesting consideration, self-control, delicacy, loyalty, pride, and friendship, these men are in reference to what is outside their circle, where the foreign element of foreign country begins, not much better than beasts of prey which have been let loose. They enjoy their freedom from all social control, they feel that in the wilderness they can give vent with impunity to that tension which is produced by enclosure and imprisonment in the peace of society. They revert to the innocence of the beast of prey conscience, like jubilant monsters who perhaps come from a ghostly bout of murder, arson, rape, and torture, with bravado and a moral equanimity, as though merely some wild student's prank has been played perfectly convinced that the poets have now an ample theme to sing and celebrate. It is impossible not to recognize at the core of all these aristocratic races the beast of prey, the magnificent blonde brute, avidly rampant for spoil and victory. This hidden core needed an outlet from time to time. The beast must get loose again, must return into the wilderness, the Roman, Arabic, German, and Japanese nobility, the Homeric heroes, the Scandinavian Vikings, are all alike in this need. It is the aristocratic races who have left the idea barbarian on all the tracks in which they have marched. Nay, a consciousness of this very barbarianism, and even a pride in it, manifests itself even in their highest civilization. For example, when Pericles says to his Athenians in that celebrated funeral oration, Our audacity has forced away over every land and sea, rearing everywhere imperishable memorials of itself for good and for evil. This audacity of aristocratic races, mad, absurd, and spasmodic, 
as may be its expression, the incalculable and fantastic nature of their enterprises. Pericles sets in special relief and glory the Hramuthia of the Athenians, their nonchalance and contempt for safety, body, life, and comfort, their awful joy and intense delight in all destruction, in all the ecstasies of victory and cruelty. All these features become crystallized for those who suffered thereby in the picture of the barbarian, of the evil enemy, perhaps of the goth and of the vandal. The profound icy mistrust which the German provokes as soon as he arrives at power, even at the present time, is always still an aftermath of that inextinguishable horror with which for whole centuries Europe has regarded the wrath of the blonde Teuton beast, although between the old Germans and ourselves there exists scarcely a psychological, let alone a physical, relationship. I have once called attention to the embarrassment of Hesiod when he conceived the series of social ages and endeavored to express them in gold, silver, and bronze, he could only dispose of the contradiction with which he was confronted by the Homeric world, an age magnificent indeed, but at the same time so awful and so violent, by making two ages out of one, which he henceforth placed one behind the other, first the age of the heroes and demigods, as that world had remained in the memories of the aristocratic families, who found therein their own ancestors, secondly the Bronze Age, as that corresponding age appeared to the descendants of the oppressed, spoiled, ill-treated, exiled, enslaved, namely, as an age of bronze, as I have said, hard, cold, terrible, without feelings and without conscience, crushing everything and bespattering everything with blood. Granted the truth of the theory now believed to be true, that the very essence of all civilization is to train out of man, the beast of prey, a tame and civilized animal, a domesticated animal. It follows indubitably that we must regard as the real tools of civilization all those instincts of reaction and resentment, by the help of which the aristocratic races, together with their ideals, were finally degraded and overpowered. Though that has not yet come to be synonymous with saying that the bearers of those tools also represented the civilization, it is rather the contrary that is not only probable, nay, it is palpable today. These bearers of vindictive instincts that have to be bottled up, these descendants of all European and non-European slavery, especially of the pre-Aryan population, these peoples, I say, represent the decline of humanity. These tools of civilization are a disgrace to humanity, and constitute in reality more of an argument against civilization, more of a reason why civilization should be suspected. One may be perfectly justified in being always afraid of the blonde beast that lies at the core of all aristocratic races, and in being on one's guard. But who would not a hundred times prefer to be afraid when one at the same time admires than to be immune from fear at the cost of being perpetually obsessed with a loathsome spectacle of the distorted, the dwarfed, the stunted, the envenomed? And is that not our fate? What produces today our repulsion toward man? For we suffer from man. There is no doubt about it. It is not fear. 
it is rather that we have nothing more to fear from men it is that the worm man is in the foreground and pululates it is that the tame man the wretched mediocre and unedifying creature has learned to consider himself a goal and a pinnacle an inner meaning an historic principle a higher man yes it is that he has a certain right so to consider himself in so far as he feels that in contrast to that excess of deformity disease exhaustion and effeteness whose odor is beginning to pollute present-day europe he at any rate has achieved a relative success he at any rate still says yes to life twelve i cannot refrain at this juncture from uttering a sigh and one last hope what is it precisely which i find intolerable that which i alone cannot get rid of which makes me choke and faint bad air bad air that something misbegotten comes near me that i must inhale the odor of the entrails of a misbegotten soul that accepted what can one not endure in the way of need privation bad weather sickness toil solitude in point of fact one manages to get over everything born as one is to a burrowing and battling existence one always returns once again to the light one always lives again one's golden hour of victory and then one stands as one was born unbreakable tense ready for something more difficult for something more distant like a bow stretched but tauter by every strain but from time to time do ye grant me assuming that beyond good and evil there are goddesses who can grant one glimpse grant me but one glimpse only of something perfect fully realized happy mighty triumphant of something that still gives cause for fear a glimpse of a man that justifies the existence of man a glimpse of an incarnate human happiness that realizes and redeems for the sake of which one may hold fast to the belief in man for the position is this in the dwarfing and leveling of the european man lurks our greatest peril for it is this outlook which fatigues we see to-day nothing which wishes to be greater we surmise that the process is always still backwards still backwards towards something more attenuated more inoffensive more cunning more comfortable more mediocre more indifferent more chinese more christian man there is no doubt about it grows always better the destiny of europe lies even in this that in losing the fear of man we have also lost the hope in man yea the will to be man the sight of man now fatigues what is present-day nihilism if it is not that we are tired of man thirteen but let us come back to it the problem of another origin of the good of the good as the resentful man has thought it out demands its solution it is not surprising that the lambs should bear a grudge against the great birds of prey but that is no reason for blaming the great birds of prey for taking the little lambs and when the lambs say among themselves those birds of prey are evil and he who is as far removed from being a bird of prey who is rather its opposite a lamb is he not good then there is nothing to cavil at in the setting up of this ideal though it may be also that the birds of prey will regard it as a little sneeringly and perchance say that to themselves we bear no grudge against them these good lambs we even like them 
nothing is tastier than a tender lamb to require of strength that it should not express itself as strength that it should not be a wish to overpower a wish to overthrow a wish to become master a thirst for enemies and antagonisms and triumphs is just as absurd as to require of weakness that it should express itself as strength a quantum of force is just such a quantum of movement will action rather it is nothing else than just those very phenomena of moving willing acting and can only appear otherwise in the misleading errors of language and the fundamental fallacies of reason which have become petrified therein which understands and understands wrongly all working as conditioned by a worker by a subject and just exactly as the people separate the lightning from the flash and interpret the latter as a thing done as the working of a subject which is called lightning so also does the popular morality separate strength from the expression of strength as though behind the strong man there existed some indifferent neutral substratum which enjoyed a caprice and option as to whether or not it should express strength but there is no such substratum there is no being behind doing working becoming the doer is a mere appendage to the action the action is everything in point of fact the people duplicate the doing when they make the lightning lighten that is a doing doing they make the same phenomenon first a cause and then secondly the effect of that cause the scientists fail to improve uh, matters when they say force moves force causes and so on our whole science is still in spite of all its coldness of all its freedom from passion a dupe of the tricks of language and has never succeeded in getting rid of that superstitious changeling the subject the atom to give another instance is just such a changeling just as the kantian thing in itself what wonder if the suppressed and stealthily simmering passions of revenge and hatred exploit for their own advantage their belief and indeed hold no belief with a more steadfast enthusiasm than this that the strong has the option of being weak and the bird of prey of being a lamb thereby do they win for themselves the right of attributing to the birds of prey the responsibility for being birds of prey when the oppressed downtrodden and overpowered say to themselves with a vindictive guile of weakness let us be otherwise than evil namely good and good is every one who does not oppress who hurts no one who does not attack who does not pay back who hands over revenge to god who holds himself as we do in hiding who goes out of the way of evil and demands in short little from life like ourselves the patient the meek the just yet all this in its cold and unprejudiced interpretation means nothing more than once for all the weak are weak it is good to do nothing for which we are not strong enough but this dismal state of affairs this prudence of the lowest order which even insects possess which in a great danger are fain to sham death so as to avoid doing too much has thanks to the counterfeiting and self-deception of weakness come to masquerade in the pomp of an ascetic mute and expectant virtue just as though the very weakness of the weak that is forsooth its being its working its whole unique inevitable inseparable reality were a voluntary result something wished chosen a deed an act of merit this kind of man finds the belief in a neutral free choosing subject necessary from an instinct of self-preservation of self-assertion in which every lie is fain to sanctify itself 
subject or to use popular language the soul has perhaps proved itself the best dogma in the world simply because it rendered possible to the horde of mortal weak and oppressed individuals of every kind that most sublime specimen of self-deception the interpretation of weakness as freedom of being this or being that as merit fourteen will any one look a little into right into the mystery of how ideals are manufactured in this world who has the courage to do it come here we have a vista opened in these grimy workshops wait just a moment dear mr inquisitive and foolhardy your eye must first grow accustomed to this false changing light yes enough now speak what is happening below down yonder speak out tell what you see man of the most dangerous curiosity for now i am the listener i see nothing i hear the more it is a cautious spiteful gentle whispering and muttering together in all the corners and crannies it seems to me that they are lying a sugary softness adheres to every sound weakness is turned to merit there is no doubt about it it is just as you say further and the impotence which requites not is turned to goodness craven baseness to meekness submission to those whom one hates to obedience namely obedience to one of whom they say that he ordered this submission they call him god the inoffensive character of the weak the very cowardice in which he is rich his standing at the door his forced necessity of waiting gain here fine names such as patience which is also called virtue not being able to avenge oneself is called not wishing to avenge oneself perhaps even forgiveness for they know not what they do we alone know what they do they also talk of the love of their enemies and sweat thereby further they are miserable there is no doubt about it all these whisperers and counterfeiters in the corners although they try to get warm by crouching close to each other but they tell me that their misery is a favor and distinction given to them by god just as one beats the dog one likes best that perhaps this misery is also a preparation a probation a training that perhaps it is still more something which will one day be compensated and paid back with a tremendous interest in gold nay in happiness they call this blessedness further they are now giving me to understand that not only are they better men than the mighty the lords of the earth whose spittle they have to lick not out of fear not at all out of fear but because god ordains that one should honor all authority not only are they better men but that they also have a better time at any rate will one day have a better time but enough enough i can endure it no longer bad air bad air these workshops where ideals are manufacturers verily they reek with the crassest lies nay just one minute you are saying nothing about the masterpieces of these virtuosos of black magic who can produce whiteness milk and innocence out of any black you like have you not noticed what a pitch of refinement is attained by the chef d'oeuvre the most audacious subtle ingenious and lying artist trick take care these cellar beasts full of revenge and hate what do they make forsooth out of their revenge and hate do you hear those words would you suspect if you trusted only their words that you are among men of resentment and nothing else i understand i prick my ears up again ah 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 i hold up my nose 
now do i hear for the first time that which they have said so often we good we are the righteous what they demand they call not revenge but the triumph of righteousness what they hate is not their enemy no they hate unrighteousness godlessness what they believe in and hope is not the hope of revenge the intoxication of sweet revenge sweeter than honey did comer call it but the victory of god of the righteous god over the godless what is left for them to love in this world is not their brothers in hate but their brothers in love as they say all the good and righteous on the earth and how do they name that which serves them as a solace against all the troubles of life their phantasmagoria of their anticipated future blessedness how do i hear right they call it the last judgment the advent of their kingdom the kingdom of god but in the meanwhile they live in faith in love in hope enough enough fifteen in the faith in what in the love for what in the hope of what these weaklings they also forsooth wish to be strong sometime there is no doubt about it sometime their kingdom also must come the kingdom of god is their name for it as has been mentioned they are so meek in everything yet in order to experience that kingdom it is necessary to live long to live beyond death yes eternal life is necessary so that one can make up forever for that earthly life in faith in love in hope make up for what make up by what dante as it seems to me made a crass mistake when with awe-inspiring ingenuity he placed that inscription over the gate in his hell me too made eternal love at any rate the following inscription would have a much better right to stand over the gate of the christian paradise in its eternal blessedness me too made eternal hate granted of course that a truth may rightly stand over the gate to a lie for what is the blessedness of that paradise possibly we could quickly surmise it but it is better that it should be explicitly attested by an authority who in such matters is not only to be disparaged thomas of aquinas the great teacher and saint beati in regno celesti says he as gently as a lamb videbunt peanus damnatorum ut beadito ilius magis compliciat or if we wish to hear a stronger tone a word from the mouth of a triumphant father of the church who warned his disciples against the cruel ecstasies of the public spectacles but why faith offers us much more says he de spectac chapter twenty nine following something much stronger thanks to the redemption joys of quite another kind stand at our disposal instead of athletes we have our martyrs we wish for blood well we have the blood of christ but what then awaits us on the day of his return of his triumph and then does he proceed does this enraptured visionary at enum supersunt alia spectacula ille ultimus et perpetuus judicii dies ille nationabus insperatus ille derisus cum tanta sceculi vestustas et tot ejus nativitates uno igne hariantur quae tunc spectaculi latido quid admire quid ridcam ubi gaudeam 
ubi exultem spectans tot et tantos regnes qui in caelum recepti nuntiabor cum ipso juovet upses tuis testibus in imis tenebris congementes item presides the provisional governors persecutores dominici nominis seviboros quam ipsi flamis severient insulatibus contra cristelos liquiscentes cos preteria sapientes illus philosophos quorum disculipus suis una conflaglitibus erobedcentes quibus nihil adeum pertinere suadebant quibus anamas aut nullas aut non in pristina corpora redituras affirmabant etiam poetas non an radamanti nec an minios sed ad inobinati christi tribunal palpitantes tuc magis tragiodi audiendi magisciliset vocales with louder tones and more violent shrieks in sua propria calamitate tunc histriones cognoscende solutiores multiple ignem tunc spectandus origa inflamia rota totus rubens tunc existi contemplandi non in gymnasis sed in igne jaculati nisi quodne tunc quidem illos velem vivos ud qui malam ad eos proteus conspecnum insatadiebilem conferere qui in dominum severivrunt he est illis dicam fabri aut filius as is shown by the whole of the following and in particular by this well-known description of the mother of jesus from the talmud tertullian is henceforth referring to the jews sabati destructor samaritis et demonium habens hic est quem a juda redemnites hic est ille arundine et colafis de vertepalas sputamentis de decoratas fele et accento potatus hic est quem clanu discentes sublipurunt et resurrexisse dicataur vel hortalanus detraxit net lacuto sue frequentia commentiam ledienrentur ut talia spectes ut talibus exultis quis tibi pretur at consul aut sacerdos de sua liberalitate presitipunt et tamen hoc iam hebimus codamundo perfidem spiritu imaginante representata ceterum qualia ilia sunt quae nec oculus vidit nec auris audivit nec in cor hominis ascelederunt credo circo et ultraque cavia first and fourth row or according to others the comic and the tragic stage et omni studio gratiore perfidem so stands it written sixteen let us come to a conclusion 
the two opposing values good and bad good and evil have fought a dreadful thousand-year fight in the world and though indubitably the second value has been for a long time in the preponderance there are not wanting places where the fortune of the fight is still undecisive it can almost be said that in the meanwhile the fight reaches a higher and higher level and that in the meanwhile it has become more and more intense and always more and more psychological so that nowadays there is perhaps no more decisive mark of the higher nature of the more psychological nature than to be in that sense self-contradictory and to be actually still a battleground for those two opposites the symbol of this fight written in a writing which has remained worthy of perusal throughout the course of history up to the present time is called rome against judea judea against rome hitherto there has been no greater event than that fight the putting of that question that deadly antagonism rome found in the jew the incarnation of the unnatural as though it were its diametrically opposed monstrosity and in rome the jew was held to be convicted of hatred of the whole human race and rightly so in so far as it is right to link the well-being and the future of the human race to the unconditional mastery of the aristocratic values of the roman values what conversely did the jews feel against rome one can surmise it from a thousand symptoms but it is sufficiently to carry one's mind back to the johannian apocalypse that most obscene of all the written outbursts which has revenge on its conscience one should also appraise at its full value the profound logic of the christian instinct when over this very book of hate it wrote the name of the disciple of love that self-same disciple to whom it attributed that impassioned and ecstatic gospel therein lurks a portion of truth however much literary foraging may have been necessary for this purpose the romans were the strong and aristocratic a nation stronger and more aristocratic has never existed in the world has never even been dreamed of every relic of them every inscription in raptures granted that one can divine what it is that writes the inscription the jews conversely were that priestly nation of resentment par excellence possessed by a unique genius for popular morals just compare with the jews the nation with analogous gifts such as the chinese or the germans so as to realize afterwards what is first rate and what is fifth rate which of them has been provisionally victorious rome or judea but there is not a shadow of a doubt just consider to whom in rome itself nowadays you bow down as though before the quintessence of all the highest values and not only in rome but almost over half the world everywhere where man has been tamed or is about to be tamed to three jews as we know and one jewess to jesus of nazareth to peter the fisher to paul the tent maker and to the mother of the aforesaid jesus namely mary this is very remarkable rome is undoubtedly defeated at any rate there took place in the renaissance a brilliant sinister revival of the classical ideal of the aristocratic valuation of all things rome herself like a man waking up from a trance stirred beneath the burden of the new judaized rome that had been built over her which presented the appearance of an ecumenical synagogue and was called the church but immediately judaic triumphed again thanks to that fundamentally popular german and english moment of the revenge which is called the reformation and taking also into account its inevitable corollary the restoration of the church the restoration also of the ancient graveyard peace of classical rome judea proved yet once more victorious over the classical ideal in the french revolution and in a sense 
which was even more crucial and even more profound the last political aristocracy that existed in europe that of the french seventeenth and eighteenth centuries broke into pieces beneath the instincts of a resentful populace never had the world heard a greater jubilation a more uproarious enthusiasm indeed there took place in the midst of it the most monstrous and unexpected phenomenon the ancient ideal itself swept before the eyes and conscience of humanity with all its life and with unheard-of splendor and in opposition to resentment's lying war-cry of the prerogative of the most in opposition to the will of the lowliness abasement and equalization the will to a retrogression and twilight of humanity there rang out once again stronger simpler more penetrating than ever the terrible and enchanting counter-war cry of the prerogative of a few like a final signpost to the other ways there appeared napoleon the most unique and violent anachronism that ever existed and in him the incarnate problem of the aristocratic ideal in itself consider well what a problem it is napoleon that synthesis of monster and superman seventeen was it therewith over was that greatest of all antitheses of ideals thereby relegated ad acta for all time or only postponed postponed for a long time may there not take place at some time or other a much more awful much more carefully prepared flaring up of the old conflagration further should not one wish that consummation with all one's strength will it oneself demand it of oneself he who at this juncture begins like my readers to reflect to think further will have difficulty in coming quickly to a conclusion ground enough for me to come myself to a conclusion taking it for granted that for some time past what i mean has been sufficiently clear what i exactly mean by that dangerous motto which is inscribed on the body of my last book beyond good and evil at any rate that is not the same as beyond good and bad note i avail myself of the opportunity offered by this treatise to express openly and formally a wish which up to the present has only been expressed in occasional conversations with scholars namely that some faculty of philosophy should by means of a series of prize essays gain the glory of having promoted the further study of the history of morals perhaps this book may serve to give a forcible impetus in such a direction with regard to a possibility of this character the following question deserves consideration and merits quite as much the attention of philologists and historians as actual professional philosophers what indication of the history of the evolution of morals is afforded by philology and especially by etymological investigation on the other hand it is of course equally necessary to induce physiologists and doctors to be interested in these problems of the value of the valuations which have been prevailed up to the present in this connection the professional philosophers may be trusted to act as the spokesmen and intermediaries in these particular instances after of course they have quite succeeded in transforming the relationship between philosophy and physiology and medicine which is originally one of coldness and suspicion into the most friendly and fruitful reciprocity in point of fact all tables of values all the thou shalts known to history and ethnology need primarily a physiological at any rate in preference to a psychological elucidation and interpretation all equally require a critique from medical science the question what is the value of this or that table of values and morality will be asked from the most varied standpoints 
for instance the question of valuable for what can never be analyzed with sufficient nicety that for instance which would evidently have value with regard to promoting in a race the greatest possible powers of endurance or with regard to increasing its adaptability to a specific climate or with regard to the preservation of the greatest number would have nothing like the same value if it were a question of evolving a stronger species engaging values the good of the majority and the good of the minority are opposed standpoints we leave it to the naivete of english biologists to regard the former standpoint as intrinsically superior all the sciences have now to pave the way for the future task of the philosopher this task being understood to mean that he must solve the problem of value that he has to fix the hierarchy of values end of section two recording by jeffrey church